Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Once again, we thank you for this bright and cheerful, sunny Sunday, first Sunday of spring. Flowers are going to start coming up soon. The trees are going to start budding. And it reminds us of new life. It reminds us of the new life you've given to us through you, uh, through the sacrifice that the Father made in sending his Son to the earth, the sacrifice the Son made in giving that life up for us. And Lord, the daily uh, working that the Holy Spirit does in our hearts and our lives, daily transforming our minds and our thoughts to bring them more in line with you. We thank you for all the many gifts you've given to us and the hope of eternity spent with you. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Famous architect Frank Lloyd Wright once told of an incident that may have seemed insignificant at the time, but had a profound influence on the rest of his life. The winter he was nine years old, he went walking across a snow-covered field with his reserved, no-nonsense uncle. Maybe you have somebody in your life who is like that. As the two of them reached the far end of the field, his uncle stopped him. He pointed out his own tracks in the snow, straight and true as an arrow's flight, and then young Frank's tracks meandering all over the field. Notice how your tracks wander aimlessly from the fence to the cattle to the woods and back again, his uncle said. And see how my tracks aim directly to my goal. There is an important lesson in that. Years later, the world-famous architect liked to tell how this experience had greatly contributed to his philosophy in life. I determined right then, he'd say with a twinkle in his eye, not to miss most things in life as my uncle had. We oftentimes miss the important things in our life because we're focused on the wrong things. We may even think we are focusing on the right things, but we find out along the way that we wasted the precious time God has given to us focused on the wrong things. We've talked quite a, uh, as, you, as you read through uh, the book of Genesis, we've talked about this man named Abraham lately. And as you read through Genesis, by the time we get to this morning's passage in Genesis 21, God has told Abraham several times that he would give him a child. But here's the problem for those of you who are familiar with the story. Abraham and his wife Sarah are well beyond childbearing years. I'm not just saying a, a couple of years. I'm talking about decades too old to be able to bear children. But yet God promised them that he would give them a child. More and more information has been revealed to Abraham. But Abraham has sort of always found a way, right, to throw a monkey wrench into things. Sarah, his wife, has even at times doubted God's promise that he would give her and Abraham a son. They spent so much time making up their own plans and focusing on how they could make things happen that they gave up the peace that comes with trusting completely in God to put all the pieces together. Their focus on the wrong thing brought heartache, it brought marital strain, and it brought more trouble into their lives than if they had simply focused on the fact God made a promise to them and God would make it come to pass. 
It's a very simple truth, very hard to, to follow through with on our part. But it, if we just focused on that and anchored our, our souls and our hopes and our dreams into that, God makes promises and he will keep them. Then the whole rest of our lives can be lived in peace. And as we'll see, also in joy. You may be struggling with trusting God with something right now or worrying about something, or wondering how something will actually work out, or being scared of something, or needing the strength to carry on in a very draining situation. God's word for you today is this. His promises never change. And he never changes. I want you to be shored up with this truth today as we take a look at a very powerful promise, a very impossible promise that God makes to someone and how he makes that come to fruition. So if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to Genesis chapter 21. We're going to be in the first few verses here, one through nine. If you didn't bring your Bible with you today, uh, um, or uh, I'm sorry, one through seven. Uh, if you didn't bring your Bible today, uh, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to Genesis chapter one uh, or look it up on your smartphone app. Uh, verse one, we're going to start with, then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. We could just stop there with that one verse. It's all wrapped up in that one verse, but we're not going to, we're going to expand a little bit on that. The word took note of in the NASB, or visited, depending on your translation, means in the Hebrew to visit someone for a purpose. Not to just drop by and hang out with them, but to visit somebody for a purpose. We can see the meaning of this word a little bit better when we look at Jeremiah 27. That's Frank Lloyd Wright. All right. <laughs> they will be brought to Babylon and will be there until the day I visit them, says the Lord. Then I will bring them back and restore them to this place. There's this personal attachment with the experience, with the word there, to the day I visit them. There's a personal attachment with this experience. It's like when an old friend drops by. There's an intimacy and a personal connection that no one else can experience. You have all these memories with them that you can rehash and, and talk about and laugh about. You know each other very well. And the years have done nothing to dampen that friendship. So in Genesis 21, there are two things about this divine visit in verse 1. It's personal and it has a purpose. The visit is personal because it has to do with Sarah personally. She lived all of her adult life. As you read through Genesis, imagine everything that Sarah has been through to this point. She lived all of her adult life dealing with the constant emotional pain because she could not get pregnant. She was most likely angry with herself for not being able to conceive, and her pain was heightened every time someone else around her made mention of that. Hey, when are you going to have a kid, Sarah? How much do you think that hurt every time somebody said something about that? Her pain was heightened every time someone around her made mention of that and looked down upon her for that. It's not right at all, but especially in this culture, a woman who was not able to conceive was societally shunned and seen as a cursed woman. This is what Sarah had to deal with every day of her adult life for decades, decades and decades. On top of all that, Sarah may have been angry with God because God called her husband to leave their hometown and wander around in strangers' territories for years now. 
Think of what she had to go through with that. She may have been frustrated with God because she never really had a home again. She had a home, but her husband forced her to leave that home and go wander around foreign territory for years based on this God that he said had a message for him to go do just that. She may have been mistrustful of God because it seemed like he was always teasing her. Every time her husband told her about the next thing God said to him about her conceiving a child. Here we go again. She may have been disillusioned with God because the promise he had made to her and Abraham just does not seem like it will ever happen. Sarah has had a tough life and probably has felt like she was dealt a bad hand of cards. But then after years and years and years, God makes that priceless personal visit to her. God's visit is also for a purpose. He doesn't waste time. He doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't come to bring judgment. He doesn't come to bring warning. He doesn't even come to bring more anticipation for what he's promised. God visits Sarah in verse 1 of chapter 21 for the purpose of making that promise happen. It's finally time. That womb that has been closed up for 90 years... 90 years is opened up for God to make good on his promise. In addition, I love that the text here says that he did for Sarah as he had promised. It's as simple as that. God's visit was not late. God's purpose was not lacking. God did not completely forget that he had promised Abraham and Sarah something. And then one day, God was just kind of sitting around and thinking to himself, Hey, wasn't there something I was supposed to do for what's-her-face and her husband Abraham? It didn't work like that. And then all of a sudden, he, the light goes on. He said, oh, yeah, I was supposed to give them a child. I hope they're still alive. It, it did not work like that at all. He knew exactly what he was doing in his perfect timing. God carried out his promise just as he said. Remember back in Genesis 18.10, if you, if you go back and read that, when God and the two angels visit Abraham and Sarah, and God says, I will definitely return to you about this time next year. Then your wife Sarah will have a son. God never forgot. God never stalled. God never took his time. He never needlessly put it off. God knew what he was doing the entire time. And when it was the perfect time, that's when God paid Sarah a purposeful, personal visit. See, all that time, while Abraham and Sarah continued to live their life, continued to get themselves in trouble, continued to develop their faith and relationship with God, all that time, God was working. There wasn't a day he wasn't working. All that time, behind the scenes, God was putting the pieces together. Abraham and Sarah did not see it, obviously, but that didn't mean God wasn't orchestrating and putting all the pieces together. Finally, we can read what happens in verse 2. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. Again, in the perfect timing, the time God appointed. The promise begins to be fulfilled. When? At the very time God had told him. 
at the appointed time. God was neither early nor late in his fulfillment of his promise. It was at the perfect time. We don't know exactly why God did things the way he did. We can surmise, though, that God seemingly took so long because what was important to him was not giving Abraham and Sarah what their heart desired when they wanted it. That's not what was important to him. What was important to God was the development of their faith. And the same can be said for any one of us. What was important to God was the development of their faith. Think about it. I've mentioned this before. Abraham, when God first met him back in Genesis 12, he was as pagan as they came. His father was an idol worshiper and probably taught Abraham and his siblings to worship the other gods to worship these idols, the moon god, their family gods. Then along comes Yahweh, who tells Abraham to give up everything and follow him. Out of nowhere. We can look at Abraham's life and think, what is wrong with him? Why, doesn't, why couldn't Abraham just do what he was supposed to do? As you read through the account of his life in Genesis. <laughs> we might look at other believers like that too. We might look at ourselves that way too. Abraham was human, just like we're human. That's the wrong way to look at things. What is wrong with them? Why couldn't they just do things the way they were supposed to? Rather, we should be focusing on, wow, look how far Abraham came in his faith in the one true God. Look how far he came. He started out as thoroughly pagan, with no one around him having any knowledge of this God, who told him to leave everything, and was going to give him in his wife, Sarah, not only a child, but countless descendants. Remember that? God took him out to tell him to look up at the night sky and see it said, see all those stars? That's how many descendants I'm going to give you. And he tells that to Abraham and Sarah, who had no kids at that point. Look at how far God has brought Abraham and Sarah. I'm sure everyone thought Abraham was crazy along with Sarah when she decided to go with her husband, and I'm sure you have some friends who think you're crazy for believing in Jesus. But that doesn't change anything, does it? They let them think what they want to think. But God kept Abraham and Sarah going. And along the way, with every new experience, God was developing their faith from pagan to proselyte, telling other people about God. Obviously, Abraham and Sarah tripped themselves up along the way. But we have to look at how far they had come in their faith at this point. And now, after all those years of having their faith developed to where it is now, God carries out just as he has promised. You might have something in your life that you wonder, why did God take that thing or take that person away from me at that specific time? Why couldn't he have given me more time? Or maybe you wonder, why can't God finally just give me what I've been praying for for years and years and years? Why can't you just do that? It's the timing. Not our understanding or our wishes for timing, but God's understanding and God's wishes for timing. Perhaps that thing or that person was taken from you in order for you to be in the process to be given faith in Jesus Christ. Perhaps you have not received what you long for because you're not in the right place in the development of your faith yet. You're not ready yet. 
Perhaps there are still experiences to go through and things to learn before that can happen. We don't know. God's the one in control. God's the one who knows. We need to have our focus on the right things and not be frustrated by the wrong things, not be frustrated by the wrong focus. The text doesn't come right out and say this, but reading between the lines and knowing how the human mind works, we can guess that the potential for worry did not stop once it was confirmed that Sarah had gotten pregnant. Sometimes when a woman who is in her 40s conceives, there's that concern that the child will not be born without defects. There's, there's that concern. Double that age and add another 10 years to it. You think there was no worry going on that entire nine months of that pregnancy? Yet God's will was, would not be thwarted. And somehow, miraculously, not only was Sarah was able to conceive at 90 years old, but she was able to push that kid out at 90 years old. I won't joke anymore about that. Verse 3. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Defying the impossible... God empowered Sarah's body to do everything it needed to do to fulfill that promise. Along the way, Abraham and Sarah may have forgotten God's promise to them, but God didn't. God certainly did not. God even equipped Sarah's 90-year-old body to do the absolute impossible and live to tell the tale. Oftentimes, we take God's promises for granted, or we don't trust God enough to make good on them, or we even forget them. So let's think about some of those promises. What are some of those promises? Hebrews 10, through 23 says, Let us go right into the presence of God. Did you know that every time you say the words, Dear God, you are entering right into the throne room? You are entering the presence of God. Let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. Why? For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Let us hold tightly, without wavering, to the hope we affirm. Why? Because God can be trusted to keep his promise. Amen? If you've been born again, if you've accepted Jesus as your Savior and your King, forgiven and covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, you can draw near to God with certainty because God promises you are clean before Him, never again needing to earn His love and the faith He has given to you. You just need to accept it. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ has reconciled you to the Father. Through a relationship with Jesus Christ, you can be one with God. Not only that, but 2 Corinthians 5 promises us, God himself has prepared us for this. And as a guarantee, as a promise, he has given us his Holy Spirit. You want to know if you're going to heaven or not? If you have the Holy Spirit, that's the guarantee. That's the down payment on your heavenly home. So we are always confident. There's never a time when we're not confident. Even though we know that as long as we live in these bodies, we are not at home with the Lord. So what does that tell us? If you're not in that body, guess who you're with? Immediately. Your Savior and your King. For we live by believing and not by seeing. 
This is not our home. <laughs> Thank God. This is not our home. God has promised us a heavenly home and gives us the Holy Spirit as the down payment for that heavenly home for that promise. Along with that promise, we have this truth gives us confidence that we have eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised us before the world began. Before the world even began, God made that promise. Before he even said, let there be light, he had this promise already in his mind. These are all the basic promises of the Christian faith. But how often do we take them for granted? How often do we forget about them? How often do we not thank God for these promises? How often are we not overwhelmed with gratitude for what God promises to those who have faith in him? See, we need to have the right focus. God's promises are not just future promises, but they are promises for every second of every day. Jesus wants you to remember, we said this last week, don't worry about these things, saying what will we eat, what will we drink, what will we wear. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. Why? Because they don't have God as their heavenly father. But your heavenly father already knows all your needs. He already knows what you need. He already has a plan in place to address that need. So if we're not to spend our time worrying about these things, what are we to spend our time worrying about? Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. It's as simple as that. You can take that promise to the bank. If we shouldn't be worrying or fearful, how then should we be? How should we be then? What should we be spending our time thinking about? Well, even though you might not realize it, did you know as a believer in Jesus Christ, it's possible for you to be joyful? <laughs> all the time? Joyful all the time? Psalm 92 says, it is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to the Most High. It is good to proclaim your unfailing love in the morning, your faithfulness in the evening. You thrill me, Lord, with all you have done for me. Does God thrill you anymore with all that he has done for you? I sing for joy because of what you have done. Think, strip everything, away, strip everything else away and only think about all that God has done for you the basic promises of your faith in Jesus, and everything on top of that. And that should lead us to being thrilled about all of that and being overwhelmed with joy. What is one of the fruits of the Spirit? The one that comes right after love. Joy. God is developing that in us as we love him and as we keep his commandments. But it's one of the most overlooked ones, isn't it? Joy. Joy is one of the most ignored and uncultivated states of being in our lives. And I know I'm not the only one here who thinks that or feels that way. What's modeled for us, more often than not, by a, a lot of uh, mature Christians is a sort of Charlie Brown mentality where we say, my life is so hard. Living for God is so hard. Well, 
I guess I have heaven to look forward to. Christians should be the most joyful people there are on this earth. The most joyful. There's nothing to not be joyful about. Jesus wants you to have complete joy in him. One way to being joyful all the time, no matter the, sa- the circumstances, exactly as the psalmist put it, is you may be happy, Lord, by your acts. I sing with joy because of your handiwork. Our focus should not be on the bad and frustrating things of life. Why? <laughs> Those are always going to be there. It doesn't matter what age you are. It doesn't matter what season you are in your life. There's always going to be something frustrating. There's always going to be something you wish were different in your life. So if we're always focused on that and say, ah, if I can just get out of this season and in the next one and this frustrating thing, this, this, this sad thing, this painful thing, if, that, if I can just get that behind me, then I'll be joyful. It's not going to happen because you're going to move into the next season and there's just going to be something new that's going to be in your life. Why? Because God uses the trials in our life to grow us. That's how he grows us. So there's always going to be a trial in our lives. Our focus should not be on the bad and frustrating things of life because those will always be there and will always just be in that state. If your focus is constantly on the negative, no wonder you're depressed. No wonder you have no excitement. No wonder you are not inspired or passionate about anything. Your focus needs to be on what God has done in your life and what he's currently doing in your life. How he has and how he still is protecting you, providing for you, comforting you, healing you, blessing you, inspiring you, exciting you, freeing you, and growing you. Think of all the ways God is working in your life right now. And that should just overwhelm you with joy. Paul says to the Philippian believers, fix your thoughts, set it there and leave it there. Fix your thoughts on what is true and what is honorable and what is right and what is pure and what is lovely and what is admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. That's what God wants us to focus our thoughts on. If we're constantly focused on all the negative things, that, that, that's, that's not inspiring. That's not empowering us to go share Jesus with somebody else. Because who wants that? Who else wants that? They say, your life's no different than me. You're walking down the same street, kicking the same can as me. But we have the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit of joy. And therefore, we can fix our thoughts on all these different things. What is the last description in Philippians 4 of what we're supposed to be focusing our thoughts on? The discouraging, the negative, the complaining? No, all that is worthy of praise. When the Israelites were led out of Egypt, what was the, one of the top things Moses got frustrated with them about? Complaining, right? We don't have any water to drink. We don't have any food. We want to go back to Egypt. It was better there. We can sit here and condemn them and say, what foolish people. They were just freed from 400 years of slavery. But what often comes out of our mouths and what most often do we choose? Because it's a choice to focus our thoughts on. Complaints. I'm getting a lot of blank looks here. Either you're not willing to admit it. <laughs> Complaints. 
what we wish was different about our lives, who we wish we could be like. Let me ask you this. Are those thoughts in any way thoughts that are worthy of praise? No. So the next time your mind starts focusing on the discouraging and the, and the negative or on the fearful or on the frustrating or what irritates you or what you want to complain about, ask yourself this. Is this thought worthy of praise? If not, we turn our thoughts, we turn our mind to all the many blessings God has given to us. Living a life in constant thankfulness and gratefulness will change your entire outlook on life. It's hard to be covetous when you're too busy being grateful for what God has given to you. It's hard to complain or be frustrated or be annoyed or be angry when you're being thankful for all the many blessings God has, has given to you and, and all the people God has put into your life. It's hard to focus on the negative in your life when you're focusing on all the positive in your life. See, this isn't just some pop psychology to slap a grin on your face. This is freedom. This is freedom. This is freedom to live the life God sent his son to redeem you for. Again, I'm not coming out of nowhere with this. What is one of the fruits of the spirit that God is growing in each and every one of us? Joy. This is how we should be living our lives. Focus on the promises and the blessings and you will live a life full of bubbling over joy. For Abraham and Sarah, their promise was finally realized. Now it was time for the rejoicing. Verse 4. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was brought to him. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age. This is important in verse 4 because after Abraham's promise has finally been fulfilled, he doesn't forget about his end of, it, of the covenant with God. This will still take some faith too because circumcising his only son based on what God told him in Genesis 17 would not be something that would come naturally. Abraham still had to have faith that Isaac would be okay even after Abraham obeyed God's command to circumcise him. And in verses 5 through 7, this is the time of personal rejoicing. Not only for Abraham, but for often overlooked Sarah. Abraham and Sarah named their son Isaac what? Laughter, right? Laughter. There is a clever connection laid out here with Sarah's emotions. In Genesis 18, 12, when God tells Abraham that Sarah would conceive, Sarah overhears that conversation, and what's her reaction? She laughs about it, right? Then she lies about it. She laughs about it. She laughs out of unbelief. No. Ha! That's never going to happen. She laughs out of unbelief. She can't control it. She thinks the entire idea is ridiculous. And because of that, her reaction is laughter. Now that ridiculous idea has come true. And the emotion Sarah cannot control is once again laughter, but this time it's out of rejoicing. That which seemed impossible was now real, and that which was a source of emotional pain was now a source of joy. 
I wonder if in verse 7, Sarah has some pride, not pride in herself, but pride in her God. All those who had tortured her and misunderstood her and made fun of her, had any of them born children for their husbands well after the natural age of childbearing had long since passed? I'm pretty sure the answer was no. And Sarah knew it, and she rejoiced in knowing that God was stronger and more powerful than the limits any human being had sought to project onto her and, more importantly, onto him. They said, it can't happen. Yeah, it happened. They said, you're too old. Yet in God's eyes, she wasn't. They said, you should be ashamed of yourself. Yet here Sarah was laughing, laughing from pure joy. And not only that, but God wanted everyone to hear about it and to laugh with joy right along with her. She wanted others to see the power of God, and that, was, that which was naturally impossible was entirely possible with God. So, let us too be that witness of joy, that witness of redemption, of what God can do in people's lives to this world who's looking at us and saying, what's so different about you? What's so different that you want to tell me about Jesus? What, what's in it for me? And you can say, you can have salvation. You can have peace. You can have joy. And none of those things can come from the world. None of those things can be manufactured in and of yourself. They can only come from God. And they can only come through believing in Jesus Christ. We can invite others to see the joy and the freedom and faith in God's promises that we have. And we can invite them to have that too. Again, we should be the most joyful people on earth. We've been saved by the blood and sacrifice of Jesus. We've been given new life in every way by his resurrection from the dead. We've been given almighty God. We've been given the maker of heaven and earth and the ruler of all of it as our good and perfect father. We have been given the Holy Spirit to indwell us, sealing us for our eternity and strengthening us, giving us joy, giving us wisdom in every situation. We've been given promise after promise after promise by God, him taking care of our every need, him giving us wisdom when it's needed, him fighting our battles right alongside us. What more do we need? When we take all of God for who he is, we have everything we need and we have everything we possibly could want, including all the joy we need in this life. Let the world see how different we are because of how much joy we have and live every moment in the joy that only God can give no matter the circumstances. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the gifts and all the promises that you've given to us. We can read through your word and we just run into promise after promise after promise and gift after gift after gift. Lord, we don't deserve any of it. And that's the whole point. It's all your grace. It's all your mercy upon us. We don't deserve to have you. But you sent your son to, to bridge that gap between humanity and most holy God. And because of that, if we accept his death, on our behalf, and resurrection into new life, we can have that too. Lord, thank you for that promise, that basic promise of our life.
that we have you. Not only do we have you, but we have all that you offer to us. We have you as our Father. We have you as our Savior. We have you as our King. We have you as our Comforter and our Friend. We have all of that. So, Lord, let us be overwhelmed with your joy. And let us live in that joy. And let us live that joy out. So that others will wonder, okay, what is going on with that person? And we can say, let me tell you, I've got Jesus. And you can have him too. I pray that we leave this place a little bit different. A little bit more peaceful. A little bit more joyful. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.